The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! fourth wall right now and I think I can hear my play oh god I hope my name sorry. is Elma f- <laughs> <laughs> and I use an old timey blunderbuss to hunt my play scritch 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 <laughs> scritch my name is my, my name is James Kaminsky and I'm I'm running away from this man. He's a lunatic. He is trying to hunt me down. I am the most dangerous game. Welcome to our Jack White History Podcast, where we... Paul, there's a man. He's coming after me with a gun. We're the third men, and it's our Jack White Podcast. And not that you'd ever know it. Ever. Yeah, but uh, I'm your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. I'm your other co-host, James Kaminsky. And Jason just been shot by Elmer um, and this is uh, this is a podcast where we go through Jack White uh, history and music and uh, television, film, that kind of stuff. And this week we're going to continue on a topic that we started way back in episode seven, uh, all those years ago. And it is uh, we're going to be spotlighting a tour, James. And that tour, do you know what tour we're going to be spotlighting, James? Uh, Paul, I have a sneaking suspicion. Yeah. That it has something to do with the implement that you were hunting me down with, that Mr. Elmer was hunting me down with. Yes, uh, well, that is because we are going to be covering Jack White's very first solo tour as a solo artist 
promoting the Blunderbuss album, sort of often referred to as the Blunderbuss Tour. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. I saw the Blunderbuss Tour several times. I loved it very much so. We saw it together. It was a yeah. fantastic tour, and so the, and there's just so much to get into here. It's just really, really cool stuff. Yeah, it's the first time where he's delving into his own personal catalog uh, to rearrange and revamp all his old stuff with new people, new songs, old songs, old friends, mm. new, new friends, friends, something with blunderbuss. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so it's it's a it's a whole new experience and it was a pretty groundbreaking for him uh, tour to get into this topic here we're going to break it off into a couple different segments here and the, the first one here is just going to be a little context in what was going on in jack white's world while this tour was being put together all right let's get into some background paul We're going to talk about prep for the tour here. Jack was coming off a year and a half or so long hiatus from a new studio album. He had just toured with the Dead Weather in 2010 to promote their release, Sea of Cowards. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that hiatus, James, we notoriously, famously, exceptionally detailed in Going Solo parts one and two, I believe Uh, episodes nine and ten of the podcast. That's right. So Jack is in the studio a bunch with a lot of different artists. He's meeting a lot of different people, people like Black Milk, which leads to people like Daru Jones. He's meeting people like Fats Kaplan. He's meeting a lot of Nashville studio musicians who are becoming regular faces on his material. So this is how he's sort of, this is the environment we're building to here. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's funny, in, in some of these interviews, well, I mean, we'll get to it sort of later, but, you know, it seems Jack was pretty reticent to do a solo album. Do you have a guess as to why, James? Um, well, Paul, my guess is that reticent means ready, and <laughs> that's my guess as to what reticent <laughs> means. So you're, you're choosing to redefine the word reticent. <laughs> that is your stance, your official stance. Paul, I'm going to level with you. I don't know what the word reticent means. <laughs> he was <laughs> uh, he was uh, apprehensive about doing a solo. Yeah, yeah that makes yeah. You know, that's what I said. I said re- you know, he's he's ready. He's like a cat on his feet. He's ready. He's ready to no. pounce. He's very he's no. ready to avoid this album. Uh, <laughs> James Jack was avoiding doing a solo album because he felt that's what people would expect him to do. Oh. I mean, yeah, I, we all did. To, to, to his credit, we did. We did. It's true. But this episode is not spotlighting that album. I'm just trying to paint a picture of where we are here. But, I mean, we covered it in Going Solo in much more detail. But basically what you get is RZA showing up late to a session and Jack having all the musicians in place and having songs on hand he had been writing and saying, all right, well, I guess I'll just do this. Mm-hmm. And so from there it started to take take shape. And really, the studio musicians he was surrounding himself with for the album Blunderbuzz turned into such a quintessential part of his tour. I'm sure a tour wasn't even a gleam in his eye yet at this point, but we'll sort of get there. So the long and short of it is he's in Nashville, he's settling in, he's taking the time to realize his dream projects and ideas that he finally has the money and the time to do. He's also going through a divorce, which is starting off as amicable, but would soon turn kind of ugly. I found a quote via the New York Times. 
I wouldn't stay in a band if we weren't moving forward and progressing, he said. It's more like we're best friends, referring to wife Karen Elson. Mm. Pals. Oh. So So we should be pals and not pretend we're something bigger. While the interview was being conducted, he was wearing his wedding ring, which was black diamond set in ivory on his right hand. So it's funny. There's that song. The Loretta Lynn yeah. yeah, I miss being a missus tonight where she says, I took off my wedding band and put it on my right hand. I took off my wedding band and put it on my right hand. I miss being missus tonight. I think he's making reference to the death of this relationship. All right, wowzers. Uh, pal so, <laughs> is probably the harshest term I've ever heard him use. <laughs> that is rough. That is rough stuff. I mean, yeah, that's where his headspace is at here. Um, his family life is okay in terms of his kids at this point. I mean, we don't, we don't really want to get into too much of that. But uh, again, this is via a great New York Times spotlight on Jack. The guy interviewed him at his place in Nashville. And he said, quote, White's Mansion is on seven hilly acres in southwestern Davidson County. He's just down the road from Hanks Williams' old house. There was a barn red guest house out back, but the main house was almost all white. Stately columns and white porch swing and a white veranda straight out of Gone with the Wind. Only the front door and the two chimneys were red. Whoa. (laughs) Gotta see this house when we visit. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure we will get as far as the gate and... Might get a glimpse of it, but yeah, we'll spies like us style our way in there, uh, pretending <laughs> doctor, to be doctor, yeah, doctor, doctor, yeah, we'll pretend to be Jack's family doctor. <laughs> White led the way inside past collections of Mexican dolls and two stuffed hyenas into his den. The walls were covered in flocked velvet wallpaper, and in the stairway hung a portrait of Claudette Colbert. <laughs> On the floor were two small pairs of jellied sandals belonging to his daughter Scarlet, and on the kitchen counter sat a red, white, and blue toy accordion. And belonging to his son Henry. <laughs> Could this be any more Jack White if we tried? Oh boy. This was the most telling thing to me, actually, and it flies in the face of something we said on a prior episode. When talking about the demise of the White Stripes, uh, White said that if it were up to him, the band would still be together. Hmm. I'd make a White Stripes record right now, I'd be in the White Stripes for the rest of my life. That band is the most challenging, important, fulfilling thing ever to happen to me. I wish it was still here. It's something I really, really miss. During this interview, it seems like he was in a certain headspace, which might lend itself to that quote. He might be yearning for, you know, a time when they was fab, you know? (laughs) Uh, But at the same time, I've heard him say that before, you know, I've heard him say that if it were up to him, the White Stripes would still be around. But I I know that, you know, he knew it was a a group decision. And if Meg wasn't in it, he wasn't in it. And so, you know, I agree that he had outgrown it, but I also think he could have grown it even larger had both of them still been really interested. Right. Yeah, there's a, we'll play, James, you're spot on. We'll play a little clip here from Newsnight in an interview where he talks about it a little bit more. Some bad news. Jack White confirmed there'll be no more from him and Meg as the White Stripes. But were they or weren't they an item? Meg and I had really no idea what people wanted from a male and female on stage. We didn't really know what that, that part of the, the deal was, you know. So you 
were happy to keep it fairly opaque. <laughs> you weren't going to be sunny and share. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, a, a feeling that uh, what, what we wanted to represent that was femininity and masculinity and b telling both sides of the story of whatever song was being performed. So we'll get into that a little bit more on our White Stripes breakup episode, which I'm sure we'll do. Mm -hmm. But uh, f that's, that's the headspace. So he's longing for what came before. Gotcha. And he's planning a tour. And boy, is he planning. A lot of planning went into this. <laughs> and and, and we'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. But really, one quick little follow-up family tidbit here. He was so busy planning this thing, his mother even stopped in to visit and help. This is via an interview with The Guardian. She recently came to visit him in Nashville and ended up folding record sleeves at the studio. <laughs> while White shuttled back and forth between his backing bands. I offered to drop her off at home, she says. No, you're not dropping me off because you're not going to go back and rehearse. And if you do, his voice rises into the quiver of an angry elderly lady. I'm going to be mad, he laughs. Okay, Mom, I'll stay home. <laughs> so, James, you may be thinking to yourself... Hmm, my name's James. I'm thinking many thoughts right now, but the one that's coming to mind most is he was shuttling back and forth between backing bands? Whatever does that mean? Well, James, I'll tell you. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> so this discussion here leads to really the biggest centerpiece of the tour, which is the touring bands. James, the buzzards and, and the, the peacocks yes right yeah whom i'm i'm guessing we're on opposite sides of the county because he's <laughs> shuttling back and forth he keeps them separated you joke just wait oh good so jack decides to do something different with this tour he decides to do something that sets it apart for everything else he's trying to build in struggle it's the easy thing for him to go and be a solo act and do a solo tour but he's trying to add something new, something people hadn't seen before. He's trying to add some artificial struggle so that it forces him to think differently and to stay engaged while on tour. Mm. So what he decides to do is form two groups that are going to follow him around the country and the world. An all-female group and an all-male group. Mm -hmm. The all-female group called the Peacocks, the all-male group called the Buzzards. To my knowledge, nothing like this has ever been done before. I, I think it's a really cool idea. I agree. I, I liked it during the tour. I, I wish I had been able to see both bands, but... We'll, we'll get into a little bit about what each of these bands, uh, who the members were, what they represented, things like that. So, the Peacocks is composed of Ruby Amanfu on vocals. Mm -hmm. Ruby <laughs> was quoted as saying, I got the call to come join Jack in his studio to meet him one morning in January of 2011. He was putting together the touring band for Wanda Jackson's promo run for her new album. I went to his studio, and they happened to be working on a Chris Thiele and Michael Dave's blues series that day. I didn't know Chris Thiele did blues series with him. Yes, yes he did. He ended up calling me into the tracking room with the band and put me on percussion for the B-side, Blue Knight, and backing vocals for their single, The Man in the Middle. That was a fun way to be introduced. So that's that's cool. So that's kind of how she joined. Some weeks after that, I ended up doing the promo tour with Jack and Wanda. From that point on, we had a nice flow, and I ended up singing on various projects Jack was producing, like for Seasick Steve, and any number of tunes on his own. The rest happened naturally. Hmm. 
So that's Ruby Amanfu. Carla Azar on drums uh, was known for drumming in the band Auto Lux. James, have you ever heard that? I've, I've heard of them mostly because they played at their band records a few times. Yeah, apparently they're, they're a thing. idea for her drumming she's a very good drummer carla azar and um fun fact after the tour carla had an acting role as a drummer in the 2014 movie frank starring michael fassbender and maggie oh, gyllenhaal i love that movie she was the drummer in that yes Holy and crap. that's partly why she didn't join them on the lazaretto tour wow yeah <laughs> i love that movie man and she's great in that Nice. Yeah, it's about that weird, like, guy with the big yeah, head. and the paper mache head. They build it as Michael Fassbender, even though that was supposed to be, like, a big reveal of what his face was at the end. It's yeah, hilarious. Because you're like, oh, his face is just Magneto. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Based off a real guy, by the way. Um, really? Yeah, and that, that really did happen. But, I mean, obviously, that's neither here nor there. But that guy was a real musician and comedian and wore a paper mache head all the time okay so also a real weird beard yes we had maggie bjorkland on pedal steel guitar and acoustic guitar okay katherine popper on bass burn davies katherine peepers burn peepers peepers would you like to no. play some uh no would you just want to go i want carrots would you like Ca- you carrots. want carrots. You want carrots. I said I tried. I tried to give corn. you carrots, and you radio. I tried to give you carrots, and you spit them up, peepers. There were two orange. They reminded the, me the of the carrots were too orange. They reminded me of my father. How can orange possibly? <laughs> What a dumb Peepers. character this is turning out to be. Peepers, your dad's name is Orange Pete? Yes. Uh, radio! Okay. <laughs> uh, we have Lily Mae Rishi on fiddle, mandolin, and backing vocals. We all love Lily Mae Rishi. Oh, I love her new song. I love her solo album for 2015, apparently, which I which I purchased the other day, which is very good. Lily says, uh, "This is this is for a quote uh, for, during the tour. I was called for a session. Jack was doing a soundtrack for the Lone Ranger, mm. which he ended up backing out of. Mm-hmm. But that was when they first called me and my friend Josh Smith, who is Jack's engineer. It's going to say Joshua V. Smith." Yes, who's Jack's engineer and also a tech on the road, so that was their connection through Josh Smith. uh, Josh recommended me, and they just keep calling me. I played on one song on Blunderbuss, the first recording I did with Jack. That's a sweet little intro there. Nice. We have Brooke Wagner, who was on piano, the B3 organ, and keyboards. I looked it up. The B3 is a Hammond organ or an Mm -hmm. electric organ. And uh, Brooke was the one that was pregnant for a large portion of the tour, if you recall. I don't. Uh, So... So that's the band. On working with women, there's some quotes here. White success has come from working with women. He said he liked their lack of ego. 
Quote, when you're in a room of five guys, it becomes a bunch of gorillas in a cage, he said. Girls don't have those hang-ups. Via exclaim.ca, quote, I've never had any prejudice toward anybody, and I've probably worked with more women than guys, White says. What I've noticed working with women is that a lot of the bullshit goes out the window, and the focus is on accomplishing the task and getting down to something. Guys can often walk in the room with a lot of other agendas going on. Egos, hang-ups, especially 20-something white hipsters. Ah, throwing shade. <laughs> they can bring so much bullshit to the table that you have to sift through, and then they might turn around and sabotage you a week later because of all those hang-ups. I haven't really experienced that working with females. Who's he talking yeah, what, about? What is this story? Jack, please dish. I want to know. Has Chris Thiele hurt you? (laughs) Is he talking about the go, maybe? Like, that kind of thing? I can't can't imagine. Like, that's so long ago at this point. I know. Like, maybe the Von Bondi? No, because they never worked with him, really, until, like, or after a certain point. I have no idea what he's talking about, but search me. I I have to believe it's one of those early bands because he seemed to always get along with the Racks, and he seems to have a very good relationship with Dean Fertitta. So, I don't know. But speaking of men, James, Mm -hmm. it's raining them. Hallelujah, Paul. It's raining men. (laughs) And do you know what's flying through that rain? Uh, That red, red rain? uh, It's a a buzzard, James. Oh, oh, okay. I was like, what's flying with the men? In the rain. So that brings us to the to the buzzards, the all-male group. We'll go through the members here. Dominic Davis, also known as Dominic Succota. James, I believe we talked about on a prior episode, yes, right? Uh, he details his youth with Jack in the very interesting book entitled Fell in Love with a Band. They, they interview him uh, quite a bit. Nice, nice. Yeah, they do They do that in The Sound of Mutant Blues, too. I, I heard some cool stories from him. We, we should do an episode. Yeah, he Dominic. apparently was one of the guys who threw toilets down the elevator shaft, but that we mentioned in the Halloween episode. Okay. Anyway. So he's a rascal. He's a rapscallion. Um, Dominic uh, quoted here saying, I'm from Detroit, so I met Jack when we were kids, and we kind of learned how to play music together. My family wasn't musical. His family was. All his older brothers were in bands, and they had a lot of equipment at the house, so that's sort of where we started playing. For him and I, we kind of speak the same language in music, which is sweet. Mm. Daru Jones on drums. Daru! <laughs> who we talked about in the Going Solo show. We gave his sort of secret origin there. Bottom line is, um, he came from sort of the same kind of area Jack was in. Uh, not professionally taught. An insanely good drummer. Started playing in hip-hop circles and was connected through and a rapper, Black Milk, who Jack did a recording with, and that's kind of how they met. And Daru was famously there on the first Blunderbuss sessions where RZA didn't show up, and they started jamming on stuff that Jack had written uh, instead. Yeah, love Daru. Everybody loves Daru. Uh, then we got Fats Kaplan on pedal steel guitar, fiddle mandolin, and theremin. This is uh, via Crave Online. The question was, did you audition for the band? Were there auditions at all? Fats says, no, I didn't audition, and Jack would never have done that. He would just know somebody was the right player. I started working with Karen Elson, Jack's ex-wife, and I got called by Lalo, the tour manager, to do some shows and go to Europe with her. They needed someone to play pedal steel and fiddle. So when I went to Europe with her a number of years ago, when we were rehearsing all that, I met Jack. When I came back, Jack called me. He was doing one of the Blue Series singles, and he called me to go up there. I think it was first aid kit, the two girls from Sweden. 
yeah, which are great. We talked about a little bit on prior episodes. So I went in and played pedal steel on that. Soon after, I got another call, and I started working uh, all the time at the studio doing these uh, Third Man Records singles. And Jack was doing a lot of producing of the singles at that point. So then we started recording slowly bits and pieces of what was to become Blunderbuss. So I became part of a small group of players who would get called for sessions. Hmm. Seems a logical entry. And we love Fats. Fats is awesome. Mm -hmm. With his Van Dyke beard and amazing theremin playing we've got uh, isaiah ike owens on uh, b3 hammond organ piano and keyboards uh, ike's was an incredible incredible musician a great player an enigmatic figure on stage really a presence in that band and unfortunately uh, for those of you who don't know died during the lazaretto tour yeah he was uh definitely next to daru one of my favorite band members and uh definitely gave quite a show yeah from there, we have the one we always forget about, Corey Younts, who is really the only guy who didn't get a call back for that Lazaretto tour band and was replaced by Lily May. But uh, he was on mandolin, harmonica, piano, keyboards, percussion, and background vocals. Corey said via Crave Online, I met Jack Lawrence first at a bar that I was playing piano at. <laughs> 2004, I think. Uh, it's a long time. Yeah. He mentioned to me Jack White, and I met him at a Time Jumper show. He was leaving as I was walking in. We talked for a minute. I must have given him my number. Then he called me a few months later. I think my first session was Smoke Fairies, which I recently got deep into because I loved that Blue Series single and I bought their self-titled album, which is great. Go go check out Smoke Fairies. They're awesome. I then went on to do more sessions over the years for Third Man. Then in January 2012, I got the call to be in his band touring the Blunderbuss album. Nice. Cool. Uh, He also played with the Old Crow Medicine Show. Yes, uh, which we mentioned in the Pokey Show, because Pokey Lafarge is good friends with Ketch Sikor of Old Crow Medicine Show. There you go. We mentioned earlier, so Jack switched groups, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that here. Actually, we'll start with this great interview from Lollapalooza about switching the bands. Has it been successful? Yeah, it feels very good because the the challenge for me was, you know, that's what I did in the White Stripes. And it's easy with one person, a drummer. I can just say, stop, you know, Meg, let's do something else right now and uh, switch gears. But to have five, six people behind you catch everybody's attention and try to shift gears like that. It's a bigger challenge. And for a second, I thought maybe I couldn't do it. A couple of rehearsals in, I thought, they're not really used to that. And, and it's very hard to catch everybody's eye at once. And maybe I'm making more enemies than f- a family out of everybody. But uh, after we got into it, did a couple of shows, I think everyone was like, yeah, this is way better. Yeah. Uh, but that's the thing I just had to tell them. Like, look, you just got to feel the, the lighting person. You just got to feel what's going on and just deal with it, you know, and make it happen. I think it's more energetic for them. Yeah. The sound people, the lighting people, everybody involved. The musicians, too. They didn't know that morning if they were going to play that night. Yeah. That's a, that's a very energetic thing. I also like thing. that, too. Yeah. 
We've got to kind of work for it. Yes, yeah, it, it definitely pushes all of us. You know. The long and short of it is both male and female bands accompanied Jack on the tour. The day of the gig, Jack would decide which group was going to play with him that night. This is via The Guardian. He has assembled two separate backing bands for the accompanying tour, one all-male and one all-female, and has rehearsed an entirely different live set with each. Quote, different versions of the same songs, and each band played some songs that the other band doesn't play as well, Jack says. The idea is that the two bands will alternate behind White on the tour. Quote, I've been working for weeks, driving back and forth to two locations in Nashville, rehearsing with both bands, trying to remember what versions of the songs each one does. It's very expensive. <laughs> This is like a friggin' 80s coming-of-age movie. He's got this, the all-boys camp on the one side of town, and the all-girls camp on the other side of town, and occasionally the boys will sneak into the girls' camp just so they could sabotage. Like, what is this rivalry he's creating? It's hilarious. It's not, and rivalry, yeah, we'll we'll get to some of that. very, very expensive. Yeah. As Mr. Dink would go. Douglas. Gillis. Gillis. So Jack went on to say, I mean, I don't know how long I can keep this up because it's very expensive and to keep that many people on the road. So they ask him, why are you doing this? Jack says, well, to make it harder on myself. I really don't like to take the easy way out if I can help it on anything I do. I like to really make it a challenge. I don't know how to create by taking the easy routes. Via the New York Times, he wasn't announcing until the morning of the show. Even the bands were surprised. (laughs) He'd barred them from listening to each other because he wanted them to evolve separately. Huh. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I get it. He's trying not to, like, taint the waters by having them be like, oh, this band plays like that, so we should probably start playing like that because he keeps picking them. Like, I get that, but... Can't taint those waters. Ain't taint no tainting the waters. So this is, again, via Crave Online. I thought, I'll just read you some selections of this. I thought were cool. The question, did the two bands travel in different tour buses? Fats... No, all of us in the same bus. Dominic, normally you have so many bunks in a bus, and normally you have a couple of extras to put things on. But we had 12 people in 12 bunks, so I think that was good, though. At first, it was a little strange not playing every night, but being able to be together made it seem more like one band. Daru, woo, it was crazy. But we made it. But at the end of the day, I'm grateful just to have a job and pay my bills. (laughs) Gotta keep it moving. So someone hated that. (laughs) The question, apparently they would sometimes switch the bands while Jack played an acoustic song. Hmm. Interesting. Fats, we didn't do that switch very often. Dominic, we were going to do that more often and share a lot more gear, but pedal steels can't really be shared and the drum kits were so particular that we wound up not sharing them. So once we had two kits, they decided to change everything for each band. And I think at some point they had the switch down to three minutes, but we didn't have both bands on that often. Hmm. Question. How did you feel about not playing some nights when the Buzzards were the chosen band? Rubia Manfu. They were my brothers, so I felt proud. I was dancing alongside stage. Sweet answer. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. Level-headed. Question. Was there ever a sense of competition between the two bands, even a friendly one? Lily. There shouldn't have been. Unfortunately, (laughs) there was. (laughs) Oh, boy. A little bit. It wasn't a competition for playing a slot or anything. I think more than anything, it was people wanting to play. If you're on tour and there are 10 gigs and you only get to play five, that kind of sucks. Question. Was there a specific direction in trying to make one band different from the other? Lily. 
Not necessarily. Each group had their slightly different arrangements, but we all generally played the same songs, minus a couple different ones for each one. But how am I to know exactly what Jack was going for in his head? I don't know. But it was pretty loose as well. It wasn't completely different. There were a couple shows when he got me up to play with the boys, and it was generally the same idea. I mean, they were definitely a lot heavier, for sure, musically. It's funny that she says that, because that just proves how far removed these newer musicians are from Jack's original Stripes days, because Meg playing with the Stripes knew what Jack was thinking, almost. It was like almost like yeah. they were one hive mind. Like, right. she knew exactly what changes he was going to do or just by, like, a look in his eye or something. And Lily's like, how do I know what's in his head? Which is a sane answer. That's a perfectly <laughs> fine answer because that makes sense. But it's it's so different than what Meg was doing with Jack. It's interesting to me. And it explains why Jack keeps this, a lot of the same faces around. Yeah. Because he's looking for that connection. And he had to build one here. He wanted to build a home. Exactly. Question. It seems to me that the Peacocks had more of a dreamlike quality. Lily, absolutely. But I guess that's what you're supposed to get from a bunch of women in long dresses. <laughs> <laughs> Question. When you had the two bands, did it really feel like one band united? Lily, absolutely. I mean, even now, obviously, I'm from the girl band, but all the guys were from the same group. And it still felt like one big band to me. To me, anyway, I don't know what the other ones would say. That was an interview during the Lazaretto tour when Jack combined the two bands. And by combined the two bands, I mean took the guys, ditched that one guy, Corey, and added Lily Mae. Mm -hmm. They talk about no set lists. I'll, I'll play a little bit of this Fuse interview here. Every band I've been in, we always been the goal to try to get away from having a set list so that it, it really, there's no safety net on the stage. If you don't have a safety net on the stage and you don't know what you're going to do next... If you're if you're if you're playing like that, that's very very dangerous. But if if you're fine with that sort of danger, if it pushes you, it and it pushes me, it pushes me to, to to make the next move, and it changes everything. You know, if you have a set list written on the ground and you know, okay, in three songs we're going to be done, your mindset's totally different than if you have no idea. Maybe we want to play seven more songs. It's a totally different mindset to live in. I'd rather live like that. It also puts the artists at the same level as the people who are viewing it which is one of the reasons to go on stage in the first place is to share with other people, you know, and put yourself uh, on the same level. So apparently there was no set list that made everything more confusing for everybody else. <laughs> but we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more here. And uh, really the, one of the cooler things too is uh, the I'm Shaken video mm -hmm. uh, for the song I'm Shaken was meant to document this two band approach. Hmm. So we'll just, we'll just briefly touch on tour rehearsal. This is via Crave. Dominic says two months of rehearsal were, uh, were done. But it was just him coming in and starting a song. It wasn't like, let's do this, let's do that. He tried to run a rehearsal like he would play a show. When he first called me to do the whole thing, he said that the raconteurs in the dead weather, they had to be a little more structured. They're bands with more than one songwriter, and he was hoping he could do with a full band what he did with the White Stripes, mm. as you pointed out. So he's feeling, he's missing the stripes here. Yeah, Boy, he's, he's missing them. He's having some cravings. He asked me if I thought he could do it. And I said, yeah, we just need to work on it. It took a little while to figure it out. We didn't have to just learn all the blunderbuss material. We had to learn everything. Oh, so we were God. learning all the White Stripes songs. Everything. Corey Younts went on to say, well, the rest of the buzzards already had rehearsed for about a month, and I was last to get hired. I was a little nervous because I hadn't played rock and roll in a band for several years, but all the rest of the guys were so great that we seemed to all fall in with each other, and the outcome was great. 
Question. Did you have to study parts in your spare time? Dominic. Yeah, they sent us 60 or 70 songs. Oh, God. So, yeah, it's a lot of learning to do, especially when you're playing someone else's parts. And with the White Stripes material, it's really hard because there's no parts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that'll do it. I just wanted to talk a little bit about what this tour meant to me and in general. This was Jack on the road without a band. He had two bands, but without like a band he was a part of for the very first time. Like a proper build band. Right. It was his entire catalog of music, not limited by a single band or album. Uh, I don't know how you felt about this, James, but I remember thinking that was awesome, but also a little sad in a way. Yeah, my my initial thought, which I'm assuming you had a similar one, which was, this is Paul McCartney. This is what Paul McCartney has become, which is, he's playing his new album, sure, but he's dipping into Beatles territory. He's dipping into times of yore you know he's trying to gather fans from other generations of his music yeah because either the new album isn't as successful or he's longing for that time again so it yeah i get i get why it's a little sad also at the same time it's pretty freaking awesome yeah it was great to hear those stripe songs again yeah really great we only had a brief two hours where we could hear them live uh, in person and uh yeah. I'm glad to have done that, but yeah, it was was good to hear him again. Agreed. On playing those White Stripes songs via the New York Times, White said he would never have done a solo album if the White Stripes were still together. I could have made Revolver, and people would still say, where's Meg? (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty good. So ring the Beatle bell. I asked if it felt weird to play the songs without her. Jack said, maybe it should, but it doesn't. I wrote the White Stripes songs myself. It always felt like the two of us covering my songs, which we talked about before Mm -hmm. on the show. White has long organized his albums around a central theme, cowardice, happiness, the death of the sweetheart. He said if he had to choose one for Blunderbuss, it would be death. Oh, boy. I was writing the liner notes the other day, and it seemed like it had a lot to do with that, he said. For some reason, that was overwhelming throughout the lyric writing. (laughs) Jack had a new color palette, James, this time around. Yeah, he went with blue and white this time. Blue, white, and black. Which was a marked departure from the other color schemes. (laughs) This is via the New York Times talking about how Jack coordinated the tour. Mm -hmm. Colors? Uh, There were blue PA cabinets, a blue drum kit, blue guitars... He was having some new blue suits made for himself and a new blue logo. He said the band, meanwhile, could wear whatever they wanted as long as it was blue. Huh. He's really trying to get that that stripes. white stripes aesthetic going again. He's trying to confine yeah. himself into that little room. And then really quickly here, this tour also incorporated something not totally strange from the Jack White touring world. There were secret shows Jack played that in some cases he only announced two hours prior to plugging in and playing. Wow. Third Man Records would, uh, social media would announce the show 30 minutes prior to its start in some cases. Jack notoriously hates black gadgets at his concerts, but ironically these black gadgets were essential to fans finding the show to begin with. <laughs> Well, I think that's a miscommunication or lack of understanding of his record company's social media team. I don't think Jack really gives a crap about what they're doing. Well, I don't think he knows exactly 
what they're doing, but he tells them to do it. So they're like, okay, we'll do it this way. But he is relying on black gadgets. Yes. It's ironic. So James, I'm just going to go through rapid fire all of the songs that were played on this tour. Oh my God. Yes. And I'll start with the top ones. And any time an interesting number pops out at me, I also have a count for how many times he he played each. Wow. (laughs) So the top three most played songs, Freedom at 21, Mm -hmm. Hotel Yorba, Top Yourself. Those are the top three. And he definitely rearranged Top Yourself in Hotel Yorba for this tour. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, as he did with many songs. Yep. And then the bottom bunch is like songs he only played one time. But I'll just I'll just read a couple of the bottom ones. Rock Island Line by John oh, Lomax. That's cool. I'm Shaken. He only played that once? Okay. Once. And Love is Blindness. Only once. Huh. Uh, I'm just going to rattle them off. I'm just going to go real fast through every song he played. So, Freedom at 21, Hotel Yorba, Top Yourself, Missing Pieces, 16 Saltines, Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground, Seven Nation Army, Weep Themselves to Sleep, Love Interruption, We're Gonna Be Friends, Ball on a Biscuit, Steady As She Goes, Cannon, Hypocritical Kiss, I Cut Like a Buffalo, Two Against One, Take Me With You When You Go, Blue Blood Blues, I'm Slowly Turning Into You, I Guess I Should Go to Sleep, You Know That I Know, Blunderbuss, Trash Tongue Talker, The Hardest Button to Button, Hello Operator, Black Math, The Same Boy You've Always Known, Good Night Irene, Catch Hell Blues, Carol Carolina Drama, My Doorbell, Screwdriver, Broken Boy Soldiers, John the Revelator, Hippopotamus Poor Boy, You're Pretty Good Looking for a Girl, Nitro by Dick Dale, Wasting My Time, On and On and On, You've Got Her in Your Pocket, Evil is Going On by Howlin' Wolf, Apple Blossom, 300 Pounds of Joy by Howlin' Wolf, Fell in Love with a Girl, Susie Lee, Misery Lou by Dick Dale, Another Way to Die, Finding It Hard to Be a Gentleman, Stop Breaking Down, Tennessee Border by Hank Williams, When I Hear My Name, Blue Veins, Please Don't, Baby Please Don't Go, Joe Williams, Public Service Announcement, Jay-Z, Papa Was a Rascal, James, James Booker, Little Ghost, Portland, Oregon, Lord Send Me an Angel by Blind William McTell, Highway 61 Revisited, Bob Dylan, I'm Bound to Pack It Up, Little Room, Let's Build a Home, Pipeline by the Shantes, I'm a Honky Tonk Girl by Loretta Lynn, Walking After Midnight, Patsy Klein, Death Letter, Sunhouse, Maggie's Farm, Bob Dylan, Happy Trails, Roy Rogers, Rock Online, Jackie Lomax, I'm Shaking Little Willie John, Love is Blindness by YouTube. Holy crap. Holy crap. 71 songs in total. That is extremely expansive. I guess uh, <laughs> that really goes throughout his entire career. James, let's kick off the tour. Kick, 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 kick. Off, 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 off. Kicking off the tour, Third Man held its anniversary party and two days after Jack launched his tour via the New York Times. The next week, White was giving a birthday party for Third Man, another swing bang humdinger. There would be cocktails, party favors, a limited edition LP that played at 3 RPM, a yellow and black candy buffet. He had recently bought the building next door and was in the process of expanding. Two days later, he was starting his tour, and then he was eager to make another record. So before he even started the tour, he's thinking about Lazaretto. He also wanted to open up a shop in Nashville specializing in high-end gentlemen's hats. What? He was quoted as saying, I would sleep better at night knowing this town had a store like that. Oh, God, he's turning into the Apple Boutique. The inaugural gig was on Saturday Night Live on March 3rd, 2012. He played Love Interruption and 16 Saltines. And then he played at Third Man Records on March 8th to really kick off the tour. In March of 2012, he spent a lot of time in the South, Tennessee, Alabama, Oklahoma, Texas, those kinds of places. From there, he went on to Europe. Uh, And it's important to note Tour fatigue seemed to be setting in even this early on, and I Mm -hmm. think that had to do with the two bands. 
he had only played a number uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven gigs, and already he was talking about it. <laughs> In The Guardian, uh, it was quoted as saying, but White says he was already exhausted before he left America. Oh, man. So, working out great, Jack. In April, he spent a lot of time in Europe. He visited Germany, France, and England um, at various locations. From there, he finished out the month back in the U.S. and Canada at Webster Hall in New York on April 27th, which was the Amex Unstaged special that Gary Oldman directed. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. The venue that yeah. we're shooting this thing at, um, the Webster Halls are nice. Yeah, it's going to be beautiful. And, yeah. and it's got a real, it's like a little little jewel box. Oh. You know, it's got, it's... Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just say that, you know, let's, you know, Jack, who would you like to direct this? Who, who would you like to film this? And, you know, that's, that's a nice little challenge. And I had yeah. to be given that, like, well, yeah. damn, who could it be, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I thought of you immediately. We are in the uh, well, the, the 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 TV bus. Uh, this is Mission Control, or as as we like to call it, the Blunder Bus. And uh, we're here calling the show as it's uh, as it's happening. never seen that gary oldman does this long form concert movie about jack white and gary oldman's in it and acts in it yeah if you ever want to see jack white and gary oldman getting a physical altercation you can watch this yeah he splits his lip right open yeah in like the first five minutes of the movie yeah, it's very bizarre i love it it's great yeah uh in may he played the ryman auditorium and that was the pokey one we talked about in the pokey episode where pokey lafarge opened for him via mark maron's what the fuck interview the grand old opry gave him a framed blunderbuss as a gift after he sold out the ryman auditorium two nights in a row ah that's cool which is awesome. From there, he hung around in the South for a little while before he wound up in the Roseland Ballroom in New York, New York on May 21st and 22nd. And I saw that show. We will talk about that show in the third man segment for this week. We will get there and the stories are cool. The rest of May, he hangs out in the North. He go, he plays Scottish Rite Cathedral and Masonic Temple in Detroit. Mm. He goes to Washington vancouver oregon and la he he uh, sort of winds back down in la at the will turn for two nights it's then back to europe in june where he 
mainly stays in London for a while. He plays the Hammersmith, Radio One's Big Weekend, places like that, before he's off to the Netherlands, Germany, and Belgium. In London, he also plays the iTunes Festival. Yes. Uh, which, I don't know if it's during that time period, but um, which is a live album he actually releases exclusively on iTunes. We will get to that gig oh, okay. in just a moment. Uh, yeah, Sorry, so then, this is kind of funny, he plays the Heineken Music Hall in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Eh. He then goes to Germany and Belgium, and then uh, in July, over to France, and then back to Germany, and finishes off the month of July playing the Roskilde Festival in Denmark, which is the thing he played with the Stripes, and he plays with almost all of his groups. He played there with the Tours, uh, so he, he does that festival a bunch. it's back to the United States in the very tail end of July where he played the Firefly Music Festival in Dover, Delaware. Then he zips off to Australia, actually, Hmm. where he plays Melbourne, Sydney, and Byron Bay, which is cool. He did not go there with the racks, from what I could tell, in that Broken Boy Soldiers Tour episode. We did. Interesting. But where he did go with the racks was to the Fuji Rock Festival in Nagata, Japan, where he goes on July 29th, 2012. With the Blunderbuss ah. tour. Jack's got a history with this festival. He's played with, so far, all of his bands. That, well, has he played with the Dead Weather? I'm not sure yet, so we'll look into that in the Dead Weather tours. But Yeah, but I mean, apparently it's one of the biggest rock festivals in the world. I did a little brief digging into this thing, and it's a three-day event organized by Smash Japan, featuring more than 200 Japanese and international musicians, making it the largest outdoor music event in Japan. In 2005, more than 100,000 people attended the festival. Fuji Rock Festival is named so because the first event in 1997 was held at the base of Mount Fuji. Hmm. Since 1999, the festival has been held at the Naiba Ski Resort in Yuzawa, Niigata. Acts that performed at the first one in 1997. Beck. Hey. Green Day. (laughs) Foo Fighters. (laughs) The Prodigy. I don't know what that is. Rage Against the Machine. Nice. Red Hot Chili Peppers. Southern Culture on the Skids. Sure. The High Lows. The Yellow Monkey. Summer Camp. Third Eye Blind. Okay. (laughs) From there, it's back to the United States in August, uh, where he plays Lollapalooza in Chicago. Nice. This is an awesome show. We'll play a few songs from this show here. Yeah. 
So, I mean, the energy's up. The crowd is into it. There's a really cool interview. The interviewer says it was like Lon Chaney meets Michael Jackson. <laughs> Monstrous and moonwalking? Sure. We're good with that. In August, he continues his North American leg playing Omaha, Nebraska. And then he plays something cool. He plays the Red Rocks Amphitheater in Denver. But James, before he does that, he played a secret show at an auto body shop on his way to the amphitheater gig. Did he really? Yeah. Like in, in a... Hmm. That seems like uh, Jack's... <laughs> Huh. That seems like the last place he would want to be is where cars are being fixed. (laughs) I'll show you pictures of this. It's amazing. His band is set up by the gas pump, and the crowd is gathered around and hanging all over the pumps. It's really weird. I had no idea. This is from the Denver Post. Less than six hours before he was scheduled to take the stage at Red Rocks to perform to a sold-out crowd of 9,500 fans on Wednesday, Jack White's silver Mercedes van rolled up to Isdaho Automotive on West Colfax Avenue. A 20-minute impromptu concert for about 300 fans ensued. It was at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday. Wow. Um, Yeah. That's dedication for those fans. I'm going to call out of work. Uh, Where are you going? I'm sick. You don't seem sick. (laughs) Mm. Well, look, I I have to go to the shop. I got to take my car in. I got fever. I got fever. (laughs) So Wednesday, White's mobile record store sent a Twitter message giving fans a half-hour jump on the time and location of this show. Within minutes, dozens were already on the scene, standing on cars, clinging to fences, and furiously texting the news to friends. It was a climactic end to a social media manhunt for White's Denver whereabouts that lasted the better part of two days. On Tuesday, White was spotted eating breakfast at the Delectable Egg in Lodo and shopping with his family at Rock Mount Ranchware. He stopped in for a drink at the cruise room inside Oxford Hotel, then was seen sauntering up 16th Street Mall. Around 6 p.m. Tuesday, White rented out the entire Lucky Strike Lanes in Denver Pavilions for his son's birthday party. That's where he played that show at the bowling alley uh, they're referring to here. Service station owner Manuel Bonilla said that members of White's crew had stopped in to their shop two hours earlier asking permission to put on the show. They told me it was going to be a band, Bonilla said. They didn't mention any names. Minutes after, White and his backing musicians piled in the van and headed west on Colfax. Bonilla admitted he still had no idea who Jack White was. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Bonilla, I'd like to play a show at your auto shop. Okay. I'd like to to play a show at your auto shop. Okay. Hey, Swank, you speak Spanish? Swank! Yo estaba adoro, como Madera y eso. I said como en Madera y eso. Not to settle for a mediocre view, I climbed a pile of tires. This is from a local paper. I've settled into the tires a mere five feet away from the action. I couldn't help but think how great it was to see shows like this in Denver. Jack played another secret gig in Mariachi Square in L.A. two nights prior to his gig at the Shrine Auditorium in August. And then he played another secret gig in the Rolling Records store in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so he was climbing up California there. And then just the last bit of this uh, of this American leg here, he played the Rose Garden Arena in Portland, Oregon. And he played Portland, Oregon to close this one. That's a fitting, fitting ending. It's the one time he played it on the tour. Then it's back to Europe again. Uh, we saw this in the Rax episode, him crisscrossing continents. Yeah. 
um, a bunch. And that leads to a quote from him later in the show, which I'll get to, but basically him saying he's tired of touring. This is from the Lazaretto era. I'm saying he's tired of touring because these concert promoters don't follow any logic. They just tell you when they need you and you're supposed to build your schedule around it. So that explains why he's bouncing all around like this. He goes back to Europe. He plays Portugal. He goes to Spain in September. He plays there for a little while. He goes to France, Switzerland, Belgium. And then on September 8th, he plays James the iTunes Festival at the Roundhouse in London. That's right, which has a live album released exclusively on iTunes. Go figure. I bought it in an airport because I really wanted music to play while I was on the plane, and I knew I wouldn't have Wi-Fi capabilities, and I didn't have any Jack White on there. So I was like, what albums don't I have? And so I looked, and I was like, oh, iTunes Festival. Never heard that. Downloaded it. Uh, it was great. It was good. That's good show. That's awesome. Uh, we'll play a little bit of that. to the U.S. and Canada. Uh, he played the Entelos Wireless Pavilion in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, he played the Aganis Arena in Boston. We, we've heard him play that before. And then the show we saw, his two-night gig at Radio City Music Hall in New York City on September 29th and 30th. He was even-tempered, didn't get mad one bit. <laughs> James, do you have any impressions of that show you want to share? I do i think i go over most of them in our third man segment which will be coming up but yeah it was a, it was a really good show no jack banter whatsoever there was nothing said really you know it was one of my favorite shows though it, it definitely was high speed high energy song after song after song after song he didn't really talk to the crowd though which at the time i didn't think was weird but i had heard about it i do remember mike wearing an npr shirt yeah, that's right uh, which which Jack had apparently commented the night prior to ours. He commented, this is like an NPR crowd or something. Yeah. Uh, and Mike did it accidentally, for the record. He wasn't trying to antagonize. <laughs> what James is referring to here, it, I'll just detail briefly. But yeah, Jack actually played the Radio City Music Hall 10 years prior with the White Stripes and had very fond memories of it when asked about it during a, this Fuse interview prior to the show. Remember uh, the Strokes and us, uh, Meg and I were kept were leaning out the window, and there was a lot of people on the street yelling to us, which had never really happened before in New York. So that was that was a new thing for us. I never played any of the classic theaters before either, despite how much I practiced. So via the Hollywood Reporter, this is the first night. The musician Jack White angered fans Saturday night by playing an abbreviated set at Radio City Music Hall without following it up with an encore. Reports of how long White played vary, but one concert goer tells The Hollywood Reporter he performed for about an hour. There was no announcement that the concert had ended after White abruptly left the stage. Quote, nobody left because we couldn't believe it was over, end quote, the attendee says. Speculation spread as to why the set was so short. A New York Observer reporter who was at the concert 
tweeted a Radio City security guard said White was unhappy with the sound. Another fan guessed that White was angry many of the tickets had been purchased by scalpers. This is via Diffuser. Fans and Radio City security guards have speculated about the incident, according to The Observer. Poor sound quality, ticket scalpers, a shirtless man causing trouble in the front row, and a lack of crowd enthusiasm are all rumored reasons for the singer's abrupt departure. This is via the Brooklyn Vegan website. During the show, Jack criticized the crowds, asking, Jesus Christ, is this an NPR convention? So... That was embarrassing, and the internet ran with that like it was going out of style. Night 2, the night we saw, he actually played Rock Island Line at this show, which is a favorite of the Beatles, which is cool. By this point, he had gotten so internet famous for barking at the audience that BuzzFeed covered Night 2 of Radio City. (laughs) This is via BuzzFeed. The whole show felt like a tantrum, with White playing nearly every song at a much faster tempo that made everything sound peevish and agitated, and like he was trying to get through everything as quickly as possible. I just don't think they ever saw White Stripes or Jack show. But it's possible. I mean, I noticed it, too. This wasn't a bad thing. White's music draws much of its energy from defensive anger. So he fully inhabited his snippiest lyrics. Even a song like Hotel Yorba, which is fun and cheery, came across sounding aggravated. White's rendition of the White Stripes, I'm slowly turning into you, was particularly intense and vicious, with him belting out the title phrase with an unambiguous horror in his voice. It's unclear who the you could be, but it was obvious that this was an expression of fear that he might transform into something he hated if he compromised himself even a little bit. White ended his main set with Ball and Biscuit. There was a palpable tension in the hall as people wondered whether he would decline an encore a second night in a row. After a few tense minutes, he returned to the stage for a fierce run through Freedom at 21, 16 Saltines, and 7 Nation Army before wrapping up with a relatively tender rendition of Lead Belly's Goodnight Irene. I mean, that's a dickish way of writing about it, but yeah, I, I sort of remember it that way. It was definitely a faster-paced show than what I was used to, and compared to his Lazaretto tour, it definitely seemed rapid fire rather than, you know, at the Lazaretto show, it was more, these are songs I'm going to play, I'm going to be your friend now, you hear? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. At the time, I couldn't really detect that, but I wasn't really looking for it. I I don't know. Um, I was excited to hear these friggin' songs, so I didn't really care. October, he goes to Canada and he plays there a few shows and then to the Virgin Festival at Meriwether Post Pavilion in Maryland, nice. where we saw him in 2014. From then it's to Ohio, Georgia, Tennessee, Oklahoma, then to Austin City Limits in Texas, which a lot of that was filmed on October 13th. And then he played uh, something called the Bridge School Benefit at the Shoreline Amphitheater in Mountain View, California. Allison Mosshart joined him on stage during that one. Oh, cute. Via Rolling Stone, this is Neil Young's 26th annual Bridge School Benefit Concert, which is apparently an annual event, giving the Bay Area music fans two days of a killer lineup, surprise guests, wild collaborations, and other unexpected thrills. From Eddie Vedder's unannounced performance to Reggie Watts' beatboxing for the Flaming Lips, Hmm. from Axl Rose and Neil Young's duet to an all-star finale, this year's Bridge School concerts were yet another unforgettable event in that festival's now-storied lineup. 
The full lineup for that event was uh, Neil Young and Crazy Horse, Jack White, Guns N' Roses, The Flaming Lips, Sarah McLaughlin, Foster the People, Lucinda Williams, Steve Martin, and the Steep Canyon Rangers, KD Lang and the Sis Boom Bang, and <laughs> Gary Clark Jr. <laughs> Quite a lineup. Yeah. From there, he goes to New Orleans, back to Europe, to Ireland, London, and then to Edinburgh, Scotland, and then wraps his tour returning to the U.S. with the Not-So-Silent Night show on December 7th, which we talked about during the Christmas episode in Oakland, California, mm-hmm. and then K-Rock's Almost Acoustic Christmas in Universal City, which we also talked about during the Christmas episode. His tour wrapped in Burbank, California on the Conan O'Brien show on December nice. 10th. And that's the tour. I just wanted to leave this segment with a, a wrap-up of Jack talking about touring. And after spending the better part of four years on tour to promote Blunderbuss and its follow-up Lazaretto, Jack seemed, and this is me talking, he seemed noticeably burnt out. He spoke really negatively about it and about the experience and how it took a financial toll on him especially. This is after the Lazaretto tour, but he told Consequence of Sound, It's hard when the people who organize festivals basically control my life. I have to book shows around their offer and I can't refuse. It's very expensive to tour. People think that's how musicians make their money these days, sadly, but it's hard to on the road no matter what size you are. Only seated theaters for acoustic shows for the rest of my days. Sometimes creating in a closet and never listening to it has its advantages, he added. And on that sad note, that's where we'll leave the Blunderbuss tour. Yikes. <laughs> James, you want to kick it to our third man this week? Let's, let's throw it to our third man this week, Paul. Okay, and welcome to our third man for this week, Stephen Scott. Stephen, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me on, guys. Of course. Thanks for coming to the show. Absolutely. How's the extremely poor weather you're having right now? <laughs> uh, well, nobody's drowned yet that I know of. Uh, but Great. I, I don't know. You might ask Paul, too. I know he's experiencing a little bit of that as well. <laughs> No, nah, I don't care about him. I'm mostly concerned about you. Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Well, James, I was stuck in a um, sinkhole for four hours. Thank you for asking. Um, no, I'm fine. fine. Got you out. <laughs> You're here, so I figured you're fine. Mother Earth is a little bit of a tryhard right now. <laughs> when it rains, it pours. Yes. Um, James, you're, you're the only one of us under 30. Uh, is tryhard a thing the kids are saying these days? I don't know. I had to look up a meme the other day on the internet uh, to know what it was, so I'm not exactly the go-to guy anymore for for what the youth culture is buzzing about. Well, James, now we have no one to go to, so thanks a lot. I think the frog well, guy means Nazis. Is that is that true, <laughs> Stephen? The what? <laughs> you know, a little frog guy meme. Ain't that for Nazis? Oh, the Pepe the frog. Oh, we're going there. Um, so we're not today. <laughs> Today, uh, today we're gonna, we're discussing Jack White's first solo tour in 2012, uh, promoting his album Blunderbuss. And Stephen, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the show you and I saw. But first, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you first got into Jack White and what was it that really turned you into a fan? Yeah. So before we dive into all that, I must confess I was not a Jack White fan from the outset. So. Off to a great start. Um, just, just, just want to get that out of the way. Uh, as you guys might recall, the White Stripes, you know, when they first arrived on the scene in a big way, they were kind of lumped in with all these other the bands of the time, like the Strokes, yeah. the Vines, the Hives, which was, you know, pretty lazy because they're really nothing like those other bands. 
But, you know, they've since become one of my favorite bands. And I must admit, at the time, the Stripes were the, my least favorite band of that bunch. And I just didn't, I couldn't see past the gimmicks enough to give them a fair shake. Mm-hmm. A friend mm-hmm. at the time was talking them up to me, specifically fell in love with a girl. He was saying, you know, 60s garage rock, rock is back. And I remember at the time I, I heard the song on my car radio thinking, oh, it's the band Zach was telling me about. And it was undeniably catchy, but I had heard so many one-hit wonder bands at the time come and go that I, I never really thought they would stick around past that. And I let my skepticism get the better of me. Mm-hmm. By the time I got out of college, you know, Elephant had come out and I was still deep into my ska punk music era, as we all were. Yeah. Like many of the time, yes. You were reeling in some big fish, you know. I, I, I really was, uh, truly. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I, I saw the Aquabats like two years ago, so I'm still I'm still skirting with the, the devil there, but... <laughs> I've, I've since, my, my musical tastes have evolved since then, but I do remember seeing the, the music video for We're Gonna Be Friends and just thinking, like, the drummer's taking a nap. What is this band? So <laughs> I, I just, I didn't get it at the time. But a year or so passes and I cross paths with them again um, when they performed on the Grammys. You guys have talked about that performance. From the Queen of England to the arms of hell. And I was just blown away by Jack's guitar skills. I was, you know, seeing them in a live performance for the first time and also seeing them in a totally new light. Or prior to that, my idea of them was just like the Lego music video and Meg napping. <laughs> so that that performance was really key in, you know, changing my viewpoint of them and really, you know, made me second guess myself thinking, you know, did I dismiss this band too soon? Uh, but it didn't, still didn't take. And I went back to listening to you know, Velvet Revolver or whatever passed for music at that time. So, <laughs> so it, it was actually oh poor Slash, I, poor Slash. That was him, right? That was Slash. Rest in peace, Scott Weiland. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so then it was really the Rack and Tours is what made me take another look at them. Uh, I was a Rack and Tours fan before I was a White Stripes fan. I was living in LA at the time, and Steady as She Goes was in pretty heavy rotation on K Rock. And so yeah. around that time, a coworker of mine gave me both of their albums at the time, Broken Boy Soldier and Consolers of the Lonely, and I was instantly hooked. And so I saw the Racks yeah. play a live show at the Greek Theater not too long after that. Uh, that was my first time seeing Jack oh, live wow. in concert. Nice. Wow, you saw him at the Greek? That's great. That was a great show. Yeah, that was like, I was converted from that point. to really delve into his past work. Um, After that, another buddy of mine gave me white blood cells, and I'd never heard 
like I remember the first time I ever put that on, I was sitting in my bedroom and Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground came on. And in that moment, it was like, you know, that new sound you've been looking for? Well, listen to this. (laughs) So I was only seven years late to the party. Well, that's not too bad. I mean, it's a common thing uh, we hear from a lot of fans. And honestly, James and I were talking about it. Well, I guess now two episodes back, I had been sort of a fan, but it wasn't until I first I saw that first rack show that I really became like what like a super fan. Like, oh, okay, this is gonna be a thing I'm into now because seeing him live and seeing him particularly with the rack and tours in that full rock band setting was just yeah. incredible, you know. That's what did it for me too, because that's really more where my musical tastes were at I, at the time, I, I suppose, and so just seeing what else he was capable of, you know, outside of the white stripes was pretty eye-opening. It was, wow, he, he's got a, more tricks up his sleeve. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's not, uh, as like Paul was saying, it's not an uncommon story. In fact, our third woman of pretty much every episode, Kelly Durga, had said in one of our previous episodes that she got started in the tours as well, and she became a super fan because of the last line in Blue Veins, the last song on Broken Boy Soldiers. So, uh, your story is is not uh, uncommon either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she said she said Icky Thump, which would make sense chronologically because. Well, she went to get Icky Thump after. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Broken Boy Soldiers. Like yeah. Yeah. Took a few tries, but I, I eventually saw the light or the white light, as it were. <laughs> white heat. So, so, uh. <laughs> so somewhat of a non sequitur. Speaking of the racket tours, I just got that Ryman show that oh, they yeah. did in 2011. I watched that last night. It is killer. It's so good. I wish they would get back together. Oh. <laughs> they will. Oh. Hopefully, crossing I fingers. Know. So that's 2008 era, Stephen. So we first met when we, we were working at the same place together, and I guess that was around like 2010, 2011 mm-hmm. uh, or so, right? Something like that. Yeah. And then shortly after that, Jack releases his first solo album. What were your thoughts about the solo album when that first came out? Were you impressed with it? Did you think it was better or worse than his other material? I loved it. It was, you know, I liked the new direction. Like, that's the thing about Jack White's. Like, you kind of have to keep up with him because he's constantly yeah. <laughs> moving, constantly evolving his sound. And so for me, that was, I thought, the perfect direction for him to take at that time. And it was yeah. also more in line with, I guess, like kind of folk music I was getting into at that time. And so yeah. it felt, yeah, it just like fit in with everything else I was listening to. So it, for me, it was the perfect album at the perfect time. Yeah. yeah, it had a lot of acoustic flavor on that, but it was also a lot of variety. Uh, I know you're a big Elliot Smith guy. I, I don't know how much overlap there really is there between the two of them, but I can hear some similarities in the music there a little bit. Like, I don't know, maybe some of the confessional ly- type lyrics and stuff like that, stuff that just, you know, you can tell he he's always done this where he gets really personal in his lyrics and stuff like that, but I think even more so with his solo album. Yeah. Some of those songs really stuck out to me at that time that I just thought, wow, this is not what I would have expected from him. But I I really, at the same time, I was so happy that he was moving in that direction. So I don't know. We could go on and on about his first solo (laughs) album. But there was, yeah, I, I, I revisit it often. Yeah, he often says he doesn't want to be known for just one thing. So he doesn't want to be known as the electric guitar guy. So, you know, it makes sense that he try to move into other directions with a, with another project that sort of thing you know yeah absolutely 
So that's released on April 23rd, 2012. And l- less than a month later, on May 22nd, we went to go see Jack White with our friend Alex Segura at Roseland Ballroom. Alex, who was on the show a couple episodes back. So we all went together. It was Alex's first show. Had you seen I him see- any other times beyond that? Did you see The Dead Weather? I did. I saw The Dead Weather in L.A. as well. Um, nice. Oh, I, nice. I, I guess it was the year after that. So, yeah, this, that, that would have been my third time seeing him in concert. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, the Dead Weather have a definitely a different persona on stage than the Racks do. But uh, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was just seeing Allison Mosshart for the first time. We won't get into all oh, that, yeah. but it was it was just like <laughs> pure sex on stage. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was it. Was yeah. yeah. It was like, who is uh, this? You were talking about the white light. She brought the white heat. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so, yeah, we've talked yeah. about that on the other show a little bit. That that was the closest I've ever been to like a white person orgy. Hello, I'm Chuck Taylor. Today in the news, bum stickity bum stickity bum. I like to rap a pum pum pum. That was in, I guess, back in May 2012, a blunderbuss tour. We saw him, as you mentioned, at the Roseland Ballroom in, in New York City. I don't think we had any idea who the opener was, but it turned out it was Alabama Shakes, which was a cool yes. surprise. they blown up yet it was right before it was pre-snl i'm pretty sure i remember them making an impression because steven when we got in there i think there was like a pre-opener act too there was some i think there was mm-hmm. somebody before alabama shakes like roseland was unfortunately r.i.p roseland was a very small place a uh, very intimate setting maybe one of the last times i saw him in such a small place because after that lazaretto turned into this kind of weird stadium thing mm-hmm. and Going in there, it was really, it was really hot. It was really, really crowded, and you know we were sort of being shuffled around. But yeah, once Alabama Shakes went on, I think you and I started to get toward the front of the stage. Right, we tried to sort of make our way up front. Right. Yeah, yeah. We eventually made our way about to the middle of the floor, kind of just like off to the right side. Yeah. And we'll get to that part because that's that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I really want to talk about. But I did want to mention what what really made this show special for me because it was the third time seeing him live was I had never seen the White Stripes, so this was the first time I actually got to hear White Stripes songs performed live. So yeah. during his main set, he played you know Dead Leaves, uh, Hotel Yorba, We're Gonna Be Friends, Hardest Button to Button, and what made it just amazing was it was he was playing it with the full band and so we got to mm-hmm. hear these songs with piano and bass and violin and it was his all-girl band the peacocks and they were brilliant and with these new arrangements with these additional players it was kind of like hearing these songs for the first time yeah i remember thinking to myself throughout that whole tour 
how lucky I was to be hearing White Stripes songs again was the first thought that came into my mind. And then the second thought was, oh man, is this how we're going to be hearing these songs from now on? It, it actually cemented in my mind for me the death of the White Stripes in a way. Mm-hmm. Hearing mm-hmm. those songs with a full arrangement, I was thinking, oh, this is the new normal for these white stripe songs yeah and i remember hearing uh, we're gonna be friends on that tour for the first time in a, in a country arrangement mm-hmm. uh, which is very different and i like it on a different level like you were saying it's like hearing it for the first time it's a different song he even did uh, like top yourself uh, mm-hmm. he does it in a in a different arrangement and i i really do enjoy it differently than i like the raconteurs version If you prefer the original version, you know, that song is still intact, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you want, you know, something a little bit, if, I don't know, just an evolution of that song, you know, there's, he, he gives you that as well. So, yeah, I, I, I always appreciate that. I like hearing bands play around with their old material and kind of just, you know, being able to see it in, in a different way, come at it from a different yeah. angle. Yeah, definitely. And he's, he does uh, that. He really hopped around that set, too. It wasn't sort of just Stripe songs. He did a lot of Dead Weather. He did a lot of solo stuff. And mm-hmm. then a couple oddball songs, like Two Against One from the Rome soundtrack yeah. he played at that show. That's true. Uh, Rose with a Broken Neck, too. He didn't play that at our show, but he played Two Against One. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, because I had found Two Against One during that first Jack Drought prior to Blunderbuss, you know, when he was putting out those sort of oddball singles and doing these sort of one-off projects. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, why is he playing this? It seems so random because it was just, I had only ever heard it in my own iTunes. You know, I had never heard it in public before. It was kind of weird hearing it like that, but really cool. I'm happy he did that. Yeah, he really kind of ran the whole gamut of his career. So that was perfect show all all around and it gets better. So he closed the set with Ball and Biscuit and... was awesome and then just to paint a mm-hmm. picture for the listeners um for those who've never seen a show at the Roseland before it closed the layout you know it's kind of like this long rectangular shape all standing room the stage is on one end and there's a balcony on the opposite end and so like i mentioned paul we had made our way 
to kind of the middle of the room, right off to the like very right side. And there was like a platform right there raised up. And on the platform, there were you know chairs and little round tables, people sitting there with their drinks, just chilling. And yeah. so we're, we're standing there waiting for the encore. And then without warning, we hear... And it's way, way louder than before. It's coming from our immediate right. So, you know, suddenly roadies are running around on the, the small platform, clearing the small tables and chairs, ushering people off to the sides of the stage. It's just insanity. Yeah, they got their drinks. They're like running for the side. They're like trying to get away. <laughs> yeah, it was just like it all happened all at once. Uh, just a blur. And, you know, the curtains pull back to reveal Jack. Now with the buzzards, his all guy band. And they just have launched into Black Math. each other like oh my god is this happening <laughs> uh we went from you know the halfway point in the room to like to front and center stage like just yeah we were right under him we were directly <laughs> under him <laughs> yeah like, just to just to give you an idea of how close we were to jack you know we could not only see the whites of his eyes but when he would lunge forward on the stage I could feel the sweat dripping off his hair onto me. And <laughs> Out of every pore. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I did not mind. Oh, my bit. God. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I hurried. I hurried and rushed out my phone, and I knew he hated it, but I didn't care because I was like, there's no way I'm not going to capture, like, a little bit of this. And I caught maybe a minute of, of him being really, really close. It, it's yes, crazy, I, and as, at some point in the video, we'll put it in the we'll put it on the Facebook page. But at some point in the video, you can see him sort of look at the at me with the phone, and then I feel like kind of embarrassed. So I put it away, but <laughs> it was crazy. Yes, I, I will admit I, I did the same. Uh, so if you're listening, Jack, please forgive me. I, I whipped out my black gadget during that part, <laughs> which sounds dirtier than I meant it to. It always does. Don't worry. It always, always does. And uh, so, yeah, I captured a few seconds of footage. I caught him smiling on camera while we were all singing along to uh, Seven Nation Army. That was my favorite part was when the band oh, stopped you got playing. That? And, yeah, wow. and the crowd just took the melody and they were all just oh 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 oh, oh, oh. <laughs>
Jack was singing yeah. the chorus over us, and that was <laughs> yeah. that was so fun. And and here's my question, James, where were you in all this? <laughs> What's your excuse? Yeah, James. <laughs> Look, I wanted to be there. I think I was doing finals in college. I was definitely at school, probably, because this wasn't during the summer. This was well, it's May, so it was right toward the tail end of your semester. So I would have been just graduating school. I have no idea why you didn't go, actually. Uh, probably expensive, and I didn't have the money, and I was a college kid. <laughs> now, we wound up going, we wound up going, James, later that September. We saw him at Radio City, uh, as we talked about on the show. We saw the same tour, but we saw it at the second night, the night after he pissed off everybody. Um, yes, that's which right. was a different experience at, at Radio City. It was a little more... Formal's the wrong word, but it was a large. It was a large venue. It felt less like a experience with the band, and more like we were just at a. Sh- it felt more like a show, like a performance, rather than <laughs> an experience. And that's not to say I didn't love that show. In fact, that's one of my favorite shows because we were pretty high up the balcony for that show. But I was having such a good time rocking out to the music during that particular <laughs> show. Because I was all the way up there, and I, you know, I was just able to get yeah. into the groove. And doing a bar crawl directly beforehand definitely helped. <laughs> um, so that that show definitely is um, it's higher on my my list of of Jack shows to have gone to. And we also got to see Pokey LaForge during that show, which uh, I I love him. So it was really good to see that as well. To be introduced to that man, that weird that weird <laughs> creation. Um, yeah. But at least you got to see him on that tour, James. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. Happy, I, yeah, that was the only show that I've been to that was from the a touring of the first album, you know, of one mm-hmm. of his projects. So the Dead Weather, I saw. I didn't see them on their first go around, but I saw them on the Sea of Cowards go around. White Stripes, mm-hmm. we saw them on Achy Thump. Bracken Tours, I saw them during uh, Consolers of the Lonely. And this was the first time where it was like fresh. It was like this is the first album and a new experience, and no one knows what to expect. So, mm-hmm. so that was nice. You know, it was a nice aspect to that yeah. show. Yeah, I did contemplate going to that Radio Hall sh- Music Hall show just because I'd never seen a show there before. So that would have been a cool experience in itself. I think I was saying to you at the time, Paul, that I was like, well, there's no way he's going to top himself. Like, based on what we just experienced, it's just going to be a step down from that. So I just, I guess I didn't feel the need to double dip at that time. Yeah. Lazaretto definitely took the bill and made it, they made the stakes like way higher. I don't know. Something, he did top himself with Lazaretto, I feel like. Okay. Yeah. I can't wait for that next, for this next tour. I, I was just doing the math here. I've seen him I think nine times is the total count. The last one being, James, that MSG show with the Lazaretto tour. Yeah. I hope whatever next tour we get, which hopefully will be soon, um, I hope whatever next tour we get, he switches it up a little bit still because uh, he's he's good at doing that. And now that we've seen two solo tours, I wonder I wonder what the next one's going to be like. I wonder who he'd bring, bring with him, how that would really be structured, you know? Yeah. Mm. I feel like even the, the next time he appears on tour is going to be 2018. I don't even think we're going to get one this year because I think he's going to put out an album this year and uh, towards the tail end of the year and then announce a tour for the following year. So... I feel like we're yeah. going to still be in a drought for a little longer. but I hope you're right. I, I definitely I want to see him again. But that encore is going to be the encore that all future encores will be compared to for me. I, yeah. I, I remember that part of the show more vividly than anything else. 
Yeah, those kinds of surprises will really stick out. Yeah, it was funny with the pictures. Like we were so far back for the first part of that show that I remember taking photos of his silhouette in the spotlight <laughs> as it was appearing on the wall of Roseland. Because right. I was like, I, I well, remember that. Yeah, because I was like, we're not close enough to get any good photos, so I'm just going to take this little fartsy one right here. And I took that, and thinking that's, if all I get from this show is that, great. And then Jack's in front of us, and I'm like, oh, I know. And poor Alex, poor Alex didn't follow us up during the Alabama Shakes part. He made his choice. (laughs) He (laughs) laid in his bed. He made that. Uh, he wept himself to sleep. Oh. Um, oh. Something similar uh, happened to me, not with Jack White, though, which is a regrettable choice. But my first ever concert that I chose to go to, I guess, because our, da- our father had taken us to Ringo concerts in the past, which is great. But mm-hmm. um, I chose to go. Me and my dad went to an Aerosmith concert, and the same thing similarly happened. We were in the Tweeter Center in Camden, New Jersey, which it's fine, I guess. But we were all the way in the lawn seats. So there's like a whole amphitheater and Aerosmith was playing there and they did their show and went off the stage. And I wasn't used to what an encore was as a child. I think I was 10, which why, why was a 10 year old at an Aerosmith concert? I don't know. But (laughs) so we, we started walking forward after they had ended their set and right next to us, Aerosmith came on stage to do their encore similarly to that. And I was like, this is a thing. This is why. Why are they doing concert number two? We don't have tickets to this. Um, so, yeah, th- those kinds of weird yeah. surprises are are definitely uh, some of the most memorable like concert moments you can have. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, so before we guys we wrap up, if you gentlemen will indulge me, I have one quick story to share uh, with your listeners about my visit to the Third Man Record Store in Nashville. Yes, please. Oh, go on. <laughs> yes. So uh, now this may or may not qualify as a rag and bone, but you guys are the experts, so I will let you be the okay. judges. <laughs> Um, so this was just a this was just a month prior to that show at Roseland. I flew down to Nashville to surprise a friend for his birthday. Mm-hmm. I was only there for a couple days, but I made it a point to check out Third Man. Uh, so we get there, and it's kind of out of the way. There's not really anything else of interest surrounding it. Uh, when you first walk in, I was just struck by how tiny it was. Yeah, I I think I've heard a guest on your show mention they've expanded it since then. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it a little was, bit, yeah. It was pretty small, and I just remember the recording booth caught my eye off to the side. I, I remember thinking, like, oh, yeah, I saw uh, Brendan Vincent. Yeah. He, yeah, he recorded a song there. And so, you know, other than that, there wasn't really much else to see. I remember I bought as souvenirs a Third Man sticker for my guitar and my very first vinyl, the Blunderbuss album, because nice. I knew we were going to see the show. So I, I owned that before I even owned a record player. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 I really... I, that was kind of what inspired me. I was just like, well, this feels like when in Rome, you know, I got to get this out of this <laughs> album. So. Did you buy other Rome? Than, you should have bought Rome. That was your, I didn't know. That was your first mistake. <laughs> that was. Other than that, you know, we didn't spend a ton of time there. There wasn't a lot to explore. But off to the side, there was this corridor cast in red light that drew my eye. And there was a door at the end. So I walked down to see where it led. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where it gets rag and bony. The walls on either side had all his gold records hanging on display, and the door at the end was slightly ajar. There was some white light streaming out of it. 
So I made my way to the door thinking like, oh, there's more to this place after all, maybe like a back room or a Jack museum or something. Mm-hmm. I cracked the door open, I poked my head in, and I came face to face with a humongous buffalo head on the wall. <laughs> oh, was that the same one from the I don't know. From the it, music it, video? I, I didn't even think about that. Probably. Oh wow, yeah. <laughs> and just so after I got over this initial shock, I you know, I swear the first thought that came into my head was like I cut like a buffalo. And uh, being like, what came first? But the the rest of the room was just clearly an employee space with the desk and office supplies. And before I could really take anything else in, I, I hear, sir, you know, from down the hall. It was the clerk behind the register calling me away from the rooms. I was clearly not where I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd seen too much. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> At the time, I, you know, I assumed that the buffalo head was fake, but having listened to this show and knowing now what I didn't know back then about Jack's weird taxidermy obsession, I am 100% convinced that was a real buffalo head. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it has a name, too. Um, and yeah. it, and that's hilarious because they actually – it makes sense that it would be there and away from the public because they were – they had used that, I think, if it's the same one I'm thinking of, they also used it for a 45 album cover shoot for I Cut Like a Buffalo single, and they used it mm. in the music video, too. So you, you may have seen witnessed the buffalo head there. I don't know if they have it on display now, but that's, yeah. that's awesome. Yep. Wow. Does that qualify? Yeah, that is rag and bone worthy. Absolutely. You don't want to. Steven, we're going to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us. Your support for the show is really, really appreciated. It really does mean a lot to us. I know it's, we say that a lot, but it, I mean it sincerely. I think James and I have said we expected no one to listen to this. So the fact that Accurate. you did and gave us so much great feedback is fantastic. We really want to thank you so much. Is there anything that you want to plug or you want to, any shout outs you want to give while you're here? I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> I got <laughs> no, I, um, yeah I, I'm always you know plugging one thing or another on my Twitter if people want to follow me on at Scott Duval at Scott underscore Duval that then they are welcome to but yeah I just wanted to say to you guys it's it's a pleasure you know you guys are awesome I I, enjoy, I really enjoy the show and I've it, had a blast being a small part of it. Well, we we greatly appreciate you coming in, and you you were extra prepared, and we also appreciate that. Uh, so thank you so much, Steve. <laughs> Absolutely. My my dog is thanking you as well. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's get back to the show. Later. I love it. It was. Uh, we learned a lot. I love this tour. I think it's fantastic. It was a. It was a really fine tour. I have a lot of good memories of that tour. Yeah, it's good. Good time. Good time to be a Jack White fan. Yeah, I think that's gonna do us for this week. But uh, we got some shout outs we want to give some people who've been interacting with us on social media. We have Marilyn Knave. Thank you, Marilyn. Yeah, thanks, Marilyn. We have Kelly Thomas Goralski. Thank you very much, Kelly. We have. Jacob Meadle on Facebook. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Thank you, Jacob. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. We've got Dying for Sure on Tumblr. They are 
They're just, they're definitely dying. Dying with a Y, of course. Yeah. We also have on Tumblr there, the Colopsia Kid. Tumblr's been popping off lately, James. We got a lot of awesome followers on Tumblr, and it's it's really cool. So we very much appreciate everybody following us there. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. James, then we have our regulars here. David Poe, our ravenous fan. Poe, but he's perfect. We have Eileen Corsano. <laughs> Thank you, Eileen. That was very nice, tweeting at us and, and the such. Uh, Andre Lyman, thank you very much, Andre. Yeah, thanks, Andre. We have the punk rock queen, Adrian King. We have Callie Durga, everyone's hero and my own. And then we got keeping us on the rails, Jeremy Riles. Thank you, Jeremy. Yes, thank you very much, Jeremy. Now, we would also like to thank our third man for this week, Stephen Scott. Stephen, thank you for joining us. You were a lovely guest. Yeah, you were great. You were so prepared so very prepared which was it uh, we were ill prepared for how prepared you were yes it made us really look like idiots so thanks steven (laughs) (laughs) thanks a lot and thanks sam kubert and tom valenti for helping us with our theme song great work guys great work really made us sound professional i hope you can hear the air quotes yeah Thanks, Susanna Roundtree, if that's your real name, for the intro and outro of our program. Ugh. I guess that's the end of the sarcasm bit. Come on down. To Facebookville. <laughs> you keep circling the Justin Timberlake SNL thing, but never quite touching down. You're like you're like uh you're like Harrison Ford in a plane at uh at, at the airport. He just he gets real close to touching down and then up. Oh, Nope. Mm-hmm. Nope. Now mm-hmm. I'm gonna crash into a commercial airliner. Better pull right up there. Yeah, I, it's it's worse than it's worse than a lot of things. I was <laughs> James. Uh, come on down to Facebook Town. There, I said it. Facebook.com/slash/thirdmen. <laughs> and I'm just gonna uh, actually, James. I gotta I gotta stop you right there. I got a I got a special guest here. I'm wheeling in. Uh, I'm wheeling this uh-huh. guest in here to to, uh-huh. to to help deliver the rest of these uh, social oh, media polls. Oh, oh, oh no. What? Who brought who brought peepers what? in? Uh, my name's Peepers. Yeah, we know. You're not look Radio Love We love you peepers. You're I go pee pee. You're a war hero. Pee pee <laughs> Right. But we hate you. <laughs> Twitter <laughs> Yeah, Twitter. It's a it's a medium in which you can. No, no, no. It's what my eyelids doing. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, you can look. You're not very he's... bright, are you? <laughs> he's blinking. Radio. So Peepers is blinking in SOS that our Twitter handle is at Third Mencast. Uh, radio. Oh, no. oh, Peepers. Peepers, you're falling. You're nope. you're tumbling down. <laughs> Which reminds me, Peepers, uh, there's a medium, uh, there's a website. James Peepers is no longer. Peepers is no longer here. He's well, that's fine. He tumbled. Um, Which reminds me, you can go to our Tumblr, thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. I think he's breathing. He's fine. Probably not for long. Um, fine. Well, yeah, I'm sure you're right. Uh, you can go to our website, thethirdmen.wordpress.com. That's where we post all the shows, and uh, you can see our show notes there, and that's kind of the source for the thing. Or if you want to double it up, hey, send us an email. 
Go to uh, thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Send us an email. That You could send us all kinds of stuff there. You could talk talk to us. We'd like to talk yeah. to people, you know? Yeah. It'd be fine. You could you can email peepers. Yeah. Um, Paul, can you do me a favor and just take out the, the pill marked Wednesday and just pop that in his mouth? Yeah. I mean, it is it is definitely already been swallowed. That's, I mean... By me. Sometimes it just sits and dissolves there, so... Wednesdays is a ecstasy day, um, so I, right, I yeah, went no, ahead and did that. He takes a tab of acid every Wednesday. Um, <laughs> My nurse is named Molly. <laughs> Hello. You like to hit on Molly, don't you? Radio. Um, Search the third man for you on YouTube. James does awesome visualizers sometimes. And then we got, uh, you can rate, review, and subscribe uh, on iTunes. And James, want to tell the people what what could happen if they rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes? We're doing a contest right now. We're trying to get up to at least 20 reviews on iTunes. So write a review on iTunes. Take a screenshot of that review. Email it to us with your name. And we're going to randomly pick somebody after we hit 20 reviews to receive a, a prize. We get a prize. You get one of them big, big prizes. Yeah, you're big gonna get prize. you're gonna get an awesome prize. It is the Loretta Lynn Vault exclusive DVD, which is right. fantastic, and it's such a great. It goes through that whole Van Leer Rose album, and he talks to Loretta about it. Jack uh, back in twenty, I want to say fifteen, and uh, boy, it's an awesome DVD, and it can be yours if you rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah. Once we hit 20 reviews, we will then take everybody's emails and and randomly select a winner from that group. Right. If you would like further contest details and time frame for which this is running, you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thirdmen, or you could uh, head to the show notes uh, on our uh, thirdmen.wordpress.com and you can find out all that good stuff. You can find us on Podomatic also, by the way, assorted other podcatchers. We're not doing the reviews on them, although I hear those places are popping off, but specifically iTunes, they get get a lot of, um, if we get pushed up, any of the iTunes charts, even a little bit, uh, it gets some more peepers on our show. Yeah, it sure does. And he's definitely <laughs> not putting his peepers anywhere else. He's, uh, I think he's dead. Um, and, and if you want to send us listener questions, hey, we, we're going to do those episodes every now and again. So please, if you send us a question, we will answer it on the, I mean, I can think we can say that unequivocally, we will answer whatever question you send. Uh, as long as it's not a weird sex thing, then we'll just do it as an aside. Yeah, then we'll just talk about it amongst ourselves. and Yeah. yeah. Off air, mostly. So, yeah. And uh, James, that's going to do it for this week. Until next Wednesday, I will be looking for a home. I'll be looking for a home to put peepers in. Get them out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. How's your, how's your throat?
all of that fake coughing from the coffee and cigarettes episode is uh, it's really taking its toll. Um, Stop breaking down is when we get stuff f***ing wrong. <laughs> I really love that song. <laughs> what? Stuff f***ing wrong? <laughs> no, we just purely. Oh, yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, James, you know, we screw up from time um, to time. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to our episode about Blunderbuss. Well, that's been Blunderbuss. <laughs> what? What? The record player turned on. <laughs> I thought that was a spider or something. You were hitting it. No, no taint in the water. <laughs> Woo, it was crazy. <laughs> nope, not doing that. Could you be any more Amsterdam-y? It's <laughs> my Chandler With Bing the- impression. Right, it's very topical, um, very relevant, very now. One, one small step for man, one giant leap for Lon Chaney. 